So for the past few weeks, we've been talking through a series. We, we named the series Sex by Design, and we covered quite a bit in, through, these, through this series. And you may have paid attention to this video as we, as we were playing, and uh, I don't know what went through your minds as you were watching this video. We, regret is a, it's a strange thing, and it's, it's a strange thing, and especially towards the end of the year, we have a way of just looking back and thinking, recollecting, remembering. And some of them, for, for a lot of us, some of them, this year was a great year, a lot of good memories, but a few regrets. What's interesting about this series that we've been going through, this series in itself can be weighty. It can be heavy. For some of us, we come into this series and hearing the content, hearing what God has been speaking through the men of God here on this stage, it affects our lives dearly. In the first week, we talked about happiness versus holiness, and we talked about what do we pursue? Do we pursue happiness, or do we pursue joy? Do we pursue what God has called us to, or do we pursue what's natural and what's most natural, or what's most, what brings us the most happiness? The second week with Pastor Rick, he mentioned, we talked about boundaries, and to see how setting those boundaries, how that can maximize what God has for us. And then we talked about sex in the home and how what God has designed and how it should be contained, what, it should, what the boundaries are there. We also talked last week about culture's definition of sexuality and how we decide, the, the scriptures define sexuality, how the church defines sexuality, and how culture defines sexuality. So today, I hope to conclude this series, and to do that, let's turn to our to the scripture for the day, John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to John chapter 8? We're going to read through 1 through 11, and it'll be here right here on the screen so you can follow along with me. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to him that they might test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. If you've grown up in the church or you've been around the church for a while, you've been around the scriptures for a while, this is a very familiar story we bring up. We've read through this and we love this passage. But there is something interesting that is happening. Here Jesus has an encounter with an interesting person, with an interesting past, with fascinating results. There's an interesting exchange that happens here. There, is, there are so many different parties involved, but an interesting outcome. There's, it's strangely appealing, but also strangely disturbing. 
As we address this encounter, we're going to be asking the question, can it truly be fixed? In a world where if it's broken, throw it out, that motto just reigns supreme, here a question is being asked, can it really be fixed? Can the broken, can the dilapidated, can the ruined, can that be brought back together? What was once discarded, can it be reused again? Can there be worth found in something that no one finds worth in? Can it truly be fixed? One TV show that my wife and I, we love to watch, and unfortunately it's off the air now. Um, many of you may have seen it, Flipping Bossman. I don't know, if you, have, if you watched it, raise your hand. Oh, not a few, quite a few, or a couple here and there. So Flipping Bossman, I love Flipping Bossman. It's on a, it was on A&E. Basically, two guys, Peter and Dave, they go find these just torn down, crazy-looking wreck of a house, and they come in, they fix it up, and they put it back on the market, right? And they, so they find these houses that it, you look at them, and it, pretty much every episode when it begins, there's this exchange between Peter and Dave, and they're just very exuberant, they're very loud personalities, and they're going back and forth at each other, and they're just getting at each other and saying, why would you pick something like this? This is a junk. We're going to sink a lot of money into it. You have no idea what you're doing. Why did we even get into this business? There's this constant struggle that goes on between and Peter and, and Dave, and they say, look at this mess. But somehow, some, a question is asked. Can this truly be fixed? See, if it was me, I would look at this house and say, uh-uh, let's burn it down, build something else, right? Thankfully, Pastor Brian was here and not me when Belmont was opened. I don't know how many of you came in here the first time when, the, when we first got the property. It was, it was a strange building. But today, when we look at it, it's completely restored. People with vision, people with people who heard the words of the Lord, they looked at it and said, can it truly be fixed? Can the broken and the unwanted, can the ruined and the crumbling, can it boast life again? Can it be useful for a community? Can it bring hope and light to a place that is broken? Can what was once ruined, can it proclaim the glory of the Lord? There's a question much more than a house, much more than a property, we ask ourselves today. We look back, especially looking through the series. We sit back and we listen. We hear the men of God speak. We hear about how God defines sexuality. We take a look back at our own decisions and we say, God, I think I messed it up. I think I ruined it. I do not presume to know any of your past history. I do not know especially your sexual history, but you do. And in the sight of the Lord, you're sitting and asking these questions. Can this mess I've created for myself truly be restored? Can this flaw that's in me be corrected? Some of you may have questions like, I'm an addict and I have no way, no idea how to stop. 
Maybe it's in the area of finances. Lord, I've dug myself into such a deep hole. Maybe it's in your family. I have such deep issues with my children. I haven't seen them for years. I gossip and I feel better when I run people down. I lie. I have all these different things that I'm battling through. Or even in tune with the this, this series in sexuality, you may ask questions like, Lord, I'm struggling with porn. I'm not doing well with my marriage. I'm struggling with my sexuality. I'm struggling with my orientation. I've suffered abuse from those I've trusted. I've carried hatred and mistrust and pain my whole life. I may be, I'm having an affair and I can't find a way to stop it. My marriage has been rocky and I'm thinking of leaving my wife. You're asking that crucial question. Can this mess truly be fixed? Can what I have found myself in, can it truly be restored? So when, as we ask this question and we're trying to figure out our way out of this quandary, let's go back to the woman. She's laying at Jesus' feet. She's bruised. She's tattered. She's been pushed around from where she was found, and they pushed her and shoved her all the way to the, temple, to the temple where Jesus was. Now she lays in the middle of an angry crowd. They're hurling insults, and they're screaming for her death. They have every right to do so, and she's just sitting there. She's sitting there in, in a pool of her tears, in a pool of her blood, in a pool of just shame and agony, and she sits there, and she looks around. She scans the furious crowd and she looks up and she sees stones of different sizes. She knows what those stones mean. She made her bed, quite literally. She was, having, she was caught in the act of adultery. She did not imagine she would get caught, but yet she was here. In her mind, she's asking this question. Can this truly can the mess that has found me right at death's door, can it be fixed? She lays at his feet in utter despair. She has all her charges leveled against her. See, she knew that the law was against her. The law of Moses in, Le in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And it's reiterated in Deuteronomy 22, 22, that if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die, you must purge the evil from Israel. She hears the call for death. She hears the call for judgment. She hears the call saying, you have done this, you have sinned, you have messed up, and now a price needs to be paid. Can this truly be fixed? Can the mess I've made myself, can the problem I've created, can it be resolved? Today, maybe some of you feel like her. You've heard and you've processed everything you've heard over these past few weeks. The sermon conveyed strong messages. The sermons conveyed strong themes. Maybe you're here under a weight that declares your situation sinful. 
Maybe the relationship you're in does not glorify God. Maybe the addiction to pornography does not glorify God. The screenshot of your screen from last night would not in any way bring glory to God. You heard the words that were declared here last week and through the last few weeks that any activity, any sexual activity outside of the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman is sinful as in violation of God's design. And you have that question in, your, in the back of your mind. Can it truly be fixed? When we read this passage, we have a tendency to automatically assume that the Pharisees and the scribes were in the wrong. Weren't they supposed to be the good guys? So if you're reading it with fresh eyes, or you're reading it for the first time, you would say, what's truly wrong with the Pharisee? Because if you look at the Pharisee, or if you looked at the scribe, they were the religious people of the day. They were the people who led people in worship, who led their communities in worship. They were the people who enforced the law. They were the people who exemplified what it truly meant to be a Jew, truly meant to be a a follower of Yahweh. See, they were the religious leaders. Historians record that they were a large group with considerable influence. We probably have much in common with the Pharisee. We both believe that the Hebrew Scriptures are divinely inspired. We both believe in the resurrection and a Messiah. We believe in the importance of living a life pleasing to God. We both believe and we need to share the truth about God. We both believe that we need to practice spiritual disciplines such as prayer and fasting. We believe in angels, demons, heaven, and more. We believe in studying God's Word and knowing it well. We both believe in teaching other people about God. We do have a lot in common. So what's wrong with the Pharisee? There isn't the Pharisee and the scribe aren't their groups the good people? But in reality, there is a much bigger picture, a much darker picture than what they portrayed. Yes, they emphasize adherence to scripture and traditions, but they also believe that every action in life was to be regulated. Some of these regulations were manageable, while the others were impossible to keep. They relish their role their role in making laws for everyday situations, everything that they could imagine they wanted to regulate. Historians called them mountains hanging by a hair. There were just these huge regulations that no person in their right mind could keep on a daily basis. They were legalistic and saw the world only based on rules and regulations. If you broke one, you were a sinner. They followed their law only for their ulterior motives. They exaggerated their humility. They forever look for new commandments so that they could impose on people. They follow the law for reward or out of fear for punishment. And in this passage, the, the author, he makes a quick note. He recognizes their motives. As a matter of fact, when they're bringing this lady to Jesus, it's not because of their commitment to the law that they're bringing. They're saying, we need to uphold the law. But instead, they come to him in a roundabout, in, a dece- in, in, in an air of deception. They come in to put him in a box, to put him in a corner where he would no, have no escape. You see, what they were calling for, they were calling for stoning. Stoning was a brutal form of execution. A person was cast down to the ground and people would take turns pelting the person with stones until that the last breath was given up. The first stones in this particular situation in case of an adultery, the first stones had to be cast by the witnesses who caught them. 
And then each member of the man and the woman's community would stone them. And so it's just a brutal way that, they would, that these people would meet death. But you see, in this current situation, there was not one stoning, one incident of stoning for the last thousand years. And all of a sudden, now the Pharisees and the scribes, they're all riled up, and they say, today we want to see Jesus decipher the situation. Why is this complicated? Because you see, if Jesus said, yes, the law says this, let's stone her, let's kill her, then he would be in violation of the Roman law that was there at that time. The Roman law said no capital punishment was allowed. Only they could set punishment. So either he says yes to Moses and to the Mosaic law and says, yes, let's kill her and be in violation where he could go to, he could go to prison for that, where he could face much higher penalties. Or he says, no, do not stone her. Now all of a sudden he is in violation of Mosaic law. You see, when the Pharisees and the scribes, they come in, they're not coming out of a commitment to the law. They're not coming out of commitment to purity. They're coming with an intention to trap Jesus, to bring him down, to bring him to, to, to undercut his influence on the people, to bring him to his knees. They're here with a test. See, another question you could ask and you could try to figure out, where was the man who was committing adultery? If it truly was a commitment to the law, then why were there not two people brought to the situation, to, to the judgment ground? So it's obvious that they were not interested in the law, but rather catching Jesus out. John says, they said, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him with. Let's visit that woman again. I have a question for you. Does this woman deserve mercy? We see her in as pitiful a situation as possible. She is in tears. She's lost everything. And you look at it, and you, you look at her, and you are asked the question, does she deserve mercy? If you're, if you're truly honest, if you're brutally honest, would you really want her to escape that situation? This is the woman who probably wrecked a marriage. This is the woman who probably has done this multiple times. She's probably left a wake of destruction in her past. Does she deserve a second chance? Do you know people like that? Maybe there are people in your own lives and you look at them and say, God, I hope you never forgive them for what they've done to me. I hope you never forgive them for what they have done with life, how they have cheated and manipulated situations. Do they deserve mercy? In reality, she does not deserve mercy. She clearly has broken the law. It's black and white. She committed wrong, she suffers the consequences. But according to the Bible, so have we. We deserve punishment too. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is our story. Every one of us sitting in this room, we have committed sin. We have fallen short. There is a standard that was set that we will never mount up to. Some of you may not have committed as grievous a sin as she has, 
some of you maybe even more. For all have sinned and fallen short. If you think otherwise, if you think, no, I've been a good person my whole life, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Paul continues in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve punishment. Having heard this, you're still asking that crucial question. Can this mess truly be fixed? If we all deserve punishment, can it be fixed? Can my situation be resolved? Can I escape punishment? Can I, just like that lady, I'm sitting there in facing wrath, facing judgment. Can this be fixed? Do you remember Peter and Dave I talked about a few minutes ago from Flipping Boston? You may remember some of the houses they found. See, that's what happened when they got into the picture. There's a house right on top, and you see the transformation. In the right hands, there is a solution. What was dingy and broken down is restored and freshened up. What was once condemned is livable. What was once broken down, what was just ruined was restored. What was, what was ugly was made beautiful again. When Jesus is presented with the situation, he recognizes that this is a test. So he immediately, you know, he knows what the consequences are of his words. If he lets her go, he's flouting the Roman law. If he puts her to death, he is going against the Romans. But instead of answering, Jesus does something interesting. He bends down and he puts his finger to the ground and he starts writing something. We don't know what he was writing. We can, there's a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of speculation of what he was writing, but all we know was he bent down. And as a result, everyone who was around them, they're unnerved. They have no idea what is going on. They're, so they come to this point and they keep pushing him saying, no, Jesus, you can't get out of this. Give us an answer. What does this person deserve? He gets back up and he says, the first one to throw a stone is the one without any sin. Now what would you have done in that spot? Just like the Pharisees, just like the scribes, you may have walked away too. You may have recognized, God, there's sin in me. There is wrong in me. Whatever it was, those direct devastating words transformed the situation because in one swoop, he let the whole crowd know that they were all sinners, that they had all fallen short, that they had all fallen prey to sin. They had all fallen short of the glory of God. He bends down, resumes tracing, and he bends down to resume his writing. He gets back up, and every one of them Every single one of them had left. Can the situation be resolved? Can this truly be fixed? He gets back up and he looks at the woman, woman who's probably in a fetal position waiting for those stones to come flying at her. And he asks her, where are they? They've all gone, sir. Has no one seemed fit to condemn you? She simply answers, not, not, not one. Then he says, then I do not condemn you, says Jesus. When Jesus encounters this woman, she is broken. She is full of guilt. She is full of disgust, and she's condemned. 
He addresses three aspects of her life, and I want to get into these three aspects. He addresses her past, her present, and her future. In that one statement where he says, neither do I condemn you, he is addressing two of those aspects. He's addressing, looking at her past and saying, I know you have sinned. I know you have broken the law. I know you have committed adultery. I know you have lied. I know you have done all these things. But, in, but according to what I see in my power as the Son of God, I forgive you. See, he looks at her in this situation and he says, I forgive you. Your past has been taken care of. And then he looks at her present and he says, you have, there is no condemnation on you at this moment. I, of all the people that are here, there is one person who had no sin. There is one person who had the right to stone you to death. There is one person who could have cast that first stone, but I do not do it. He looks at each one of us and he says, your sins have been forgiven, your past has been reconciled, and your present finds no condemnation. It's not because of what we had done. So what is Jesus doing? Is he removing the law and he's saying, let's forget the law because everyone's past has been condemned. No, he's not saying that. Jesus does not condone what she has done. He's not dismissing her sin as unimportant or ununderstandable. He knows and she does too that she has done wrong, but he condemns the sin and not the sinner. Today, as you're in his presence, as you're in the presence of the Almighty, you may be asking, God, can you fix this mess? Can Can this truly be fixed? And he's looking at your situation and he says, your past is forgiven There's no condemnation on you. She did not deserve anything from Jesus. We do not deserve anything from God. God owes us nothing. Anything good that we experience is a result of the grace of God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you are saved. The very fact that you're sitting here today is not your resilience, it's not your capabilities, it's not what you have accomplished, it's not your good works, it's not your family heritage, it's not the fact that you built this church, it's not the fact that your family's been in Belmont all these years, it's none of those. It's the fact that you have been saved by the grace of God. Grace is simply defined as unmerited favor. You see, for her at that moment, all she deserved was death. She merited nothing. But through through grace, he offers her no condemnation. He removes all guilt. He removes all shame that she had carried around her her whole life. Today, he's looking at each one of us. And he says, I recognize that guilt. I recognize the shame. I recognize the past that you're carrying with you. You have not reconciled that with me. Come, because I can forgive. I'm the only one that can cast a stone. I'm the only one that can judge you. I'm the only one that can truly determine your situation. But he says, come, because you have forgiveness and you have no condemnation in my presence. So that question, can it be fixed? If she asks that question, the resounding answer is yes, God restores all things. God restores all things. He fixes the broken. He mends the situations that could not be. He brings forgiveness. 
that his death on the cross restores us with God. His blood that flowed from his sides and from his arms and from his feet, they were enough to wash our sins away. If you're someone who trusts in Jesus, there is no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the arena of your sexuality, you may have walked in with questions saying, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with an addiction. I'm struggling with, uh, with the abuse that I have been inflicted upon. I'm, my marriage is on the rocks. I'm struggling with my sexuality. I'm struggling with my definition of who I am as a person. I, I don't know. I am confused. I have no idea what's happening. I have gotten myself into situations where I should not be. I have relationships on the side. I have all these things that are sinful can the situation be reclaimed? Can the situation be fixed? And the answer, resounding answer is yes, God restores all things. The Bible is full of people who have done all sorts of atrocious things. Adulterers, prostitutes, murderers, extortionists. But they're all accepted by Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul one of Christianity's greatest people. He was a murderer. He commissioned the death of people who followed Christ. It doesn't matter what you have done. There is forgiveness at the cross. There is forgiveness at the, at, in the presence of Jesus. This can be hard and weighty to grasp, especially when you're weighed down with guilt. But if God has forgiven you, then it's forgiven. You have been restored. God restores all things. But there's this final aspect of her, her reality that I want to talk about. He forgives her past. He removes condemnation from her present. But he imposes a new reality on her future. And he says to her, go and sin no more. Basically, God is, Jesus is giving her commandment. He's telling her, no, he is imposing on her. He's telling her, this is how you will live from now on. You will live in holiness. You will live in the way that, the, uh, that scripture is mandated. You will live in a way he is mandating change in her life. He imposes a new reality on us. This message today is aimed at every one of us, whether you accepted the Lord into your life yesterday or maybe 10 years ago, no matter when it has been, he is looking at each one of us and has said, I do not condemn you, you have been forgiven, but there is a new reality that you have to live in. In, our, in the arena of sexuality, in keeping with the sermon, how do we keep that? How do we stay in line? How do we keep how do we live out that new reality? There are a few practical things that I can think of that I'll share. We can start, first of all, by letting God invade our mess. You see, the, lady had, the woman had to come to a point of absolute surrender and had to say, I can't fix this mess. If someone doesn't intervene, those stones are coming at me. Only God can invade our mess. Pray. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to remove the guilt and the condemnation that you carry around every day. Even more, find a community that can help you when you struggle. We're relational beings. We are not meant to live life alone. We need a community that will rally around us in times of need. Find a mentor or an accountability partner or someone to support you when you're tempted. 
identify areas of sexuality that you may be vulnerable in and ad address them head on. But we've covered many aspects of how we can stay sexually pure, so I may not, I'm not going into all of them. But remember, inaction is not an option. When, God's, when Jesus looks at this woman and he says, now sin no more, that is not a suggestion. It is a command. To not do anything is to sin. To not, to live, to not live pure lives is a sin. To not take Jesus at his word is a sin. This is not a suggestion for you and I. It is a command. David Platt, in his book, Counterculture, he says, we are all born with a bent towards sin. But he says, we don't have to live that way. You may wonder if I'm advocating a do-good and you will be saved kind of theology, but please hear me. Your salvation is not tied to what you do. It's tied to what Christ has done. He is calling you to live a life that is beyond what you have already been through. You may be wondering if uh, I can't do this on my own. And he says, no, you do not do, on, do this on your own. I will give you a comforter. I will give you my Holy Spirit. I will empower you. I will give you the resources that you need so that you're able to live a life pure. We cannot do anything outside of his help. And finally, I'm, as I talk to individuals, I'd be remiss if I did not talk to the church as a whole. Maybe you don't have the kind of past that I described here. Maybe you may say, but we, we are redeemed. Does our responsibility end there? No. The church fits into the overall picture. Over the last two millennia, the church has been a bastion of truth. Sometimes we've done it well, sometimes we've done it poorly. The church has always been there to show people how to live a life mandated by, mandated by Scripture. But there is, the church exists in a reality between two extremes. A church exists where there is a church just communicating truth and a church that just communicates love. You see, the church that always communicates truth becomes hard. It proclaims, yes, you are a sinner. It proclaims God is holy. It proclaims all the right things, but it does not show a way out. It does not advocate grace. A church that always just communicates truth exclusively is unloving, is unattached, is harsh, and is judgmental. In their book, Compassion with a Compromise, the authors, of, they compare this kind of a church to a workman who basically addresses every situation, whether it is fixing the kitchen sink or hanging a picture or demolishing a building with a sledgehammer. Everything has one solution. And he says, let's not be a church that is only advocating the truth, but also advocates love. But you see, sometimes the church goes the other, the other extreme and all they are is a church that advocates love. A church that does that is a spineless church going according to the winds of, whims of culture. When culture says this is appropriate, the church says yes. When the, church, when the culture says this is not appropriate, the church says yes. When Jesus was on earth, he mixed truth and he mixed love. He stood right. He balanced truth and love. And as a church and as a people of God, as our families within our communities, we are called to walk the fine line between truth and love. To see each situation how Jesus would see it. And as I'm, I'll close and I'll have the music ministry come up, the team come up, and I'll, there are ways that as a church, 
we can respond to the culture around us. If you look out today and you look at the bigger conversations of homosexuality and abortion, you can see the extremes of truth or the extremes of love. You can see how the church gravitates towards one or the other and it has divided the church widely. How do we maintain that balance? First, we start with the posture of our own helplessness. Every one of us, we were sinners. We needed his grace. So if we need his grace, we are no one to condemn those who need his grace also. To look out at the world and say, just as I was helpless, you are helpless too. We need to admit our faults when we are at fault. We need to maintain that tension between grace and truth, showing true love. We should pursue relationships with people that we don't like. We, don't, we may not agree with politically. We may not agree with religiously. We, mean we need to pursue those people too. As members of the church, we need to pursue people in our lives, at work, at home, who may not agree with us. We need to model what true Christian love looks like. You see, we're not called as a ministry of shunning. We're not called to shun people away from Christ. We have to be, we have to be truthful, but we have to be loveful at the same time. We have to maintain that balance. And sometimes it feels like a hard thing. It feels like something impossible to, to accomplish. But that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Ravi Zacharias writes, We should be able to love others even when their views differ from us. We must love those with whom we disagree and wait for God to change their hearts. You see, it's not our job to change people. We love people. We bring the gospel to people. We bring salvation, the message of salvation to people and let God do the work. That's what our role is as a church. As I close here, I invite every one of you just to bow your heads in prayer. There are people here who may have incredible pain that they've been walking with over the last many years. Your past does not define you. Your regrets don't define you. The cross of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the lack of condemnation in His presence, His blessing defines you. And so would you ask Him, Lord, I find myself in a mess that cannot be fixed. I find myself asking this question, can this truly ever be resolved? Can I let go of my hatred and of my pain. The invitation's there. Come seek Him. Let Him address those things in your life. And to the church as a whole, the question is asked, do you maintain that balance between truth and love? Do you maintain that balance where when people look at you, they're not shunned away from Christ, but instead they're drawn to Him. Does your life reflect enough the glory of God, the holiness of God, the love of God, that people are drawn to Him? Or are you standing as an, as an obstacle in His presence? This morning, at, we're going to close here, and I invite you to spend a few minutes with the Lord. Seek Him. Ask Him. Pray.
Because when the question is asked, can this mess be fixed? The resounding answer is yes. God restores all things.